Great, so good afternoon. I had to figure out what time it was there. Where am I? Um, so we're continuing on the series. My name's Scott, for those who don't know me. I'm part of the teaching team. And um, we're, we're in the season of epiphany, whether you realize that or not. And epiphany means something like a manifestation or appearance. And uh, Scott Evans spoke last week on the... These are sort of... It, manifestations of Christ to the world from his almost private life as he begins to become more public. And what does that all mean? And these sort of episodes that the gospel writers record are ideas of showing, yes, revealing Christ in the moment, but also what it's revealing for his future, I suppose, future life, that, his future mission. So for one example, I thought was really good that Scott spoke yet last week on the Magi and the three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and how myrrh had this dual meaning of, well, they all had meanings, you know, not just of a baby given gold. It was a meaning beyond that, that Jesus would be king. And myrrh was the idea that anointing, that Jesus wasn't just a normal baby, there was anointing of the Messiah, but also that myrrh was a painkiller. So we're going to be talking a little bit of the, the suffering that the Christ would have to do as well. And so the, the, the story of the epiphany today is of, of Christ's baptism. And it's in all four Gospels. Um, so it's, for me, that always highlights the importance um, of a story like this, of an episode in Christ's history when all four Gospel writers put it down. Um, so it's in Luke chapter 3. Um, and in the lectionary, it kind of um, breaks it up a little bit. So I'll read those, those verses there. I think they should come up as well. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah, just John the Baptist. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And then later on, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him, a bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. So I'll be looking at kind of three questions, really. Why was John baptizing? What does that mean? In the, and that maybe gives a bit of context to the next question. You know, why did Jesus get baptized? And finally, kind of what does baptism mean for us? Um, so those three things. So why was John baptizing? In a one way, baptism wasn't It's kind of a baptism christening is a kind of part of our Irish culture. And, but back in Judaism, the, the act of baptism wasn't necessarily uh, the most common thing that was around. Um, it would have happened from time to time for, you know, and, and when you read the Old Testament Jewish scriptures, there was this idea of that water brings cleansing, um, and, but this idea of this kind of what John the Baptist is doing is quite a, kind of unusual in one way. And this idea of water that, the water that comes to cleanse not only physically, um, but spiritually is a real deep idea in many ancient religions, including Judaism. So the idea you read in Ezekiel, the prophet of God saying, you know, I will cleanse you from all your iniquities, this promise to, to, to the people of Israel. And Psalm 51, that famous psalm of confession, where David, King David, is just crying out to be forgiven from God. Only you have I sinned against. And he says, ask God, you know, if you wash me, wash me, and I will be clean. 
It's a sign of water and clean. And a custom had been built up as well for anyone who wanted to be a Jew, who was a Gentile, wanted to be Jew. This was one part of the kind of initiating rite was baptism. So that was probably an idea that they would have picked up on. This idea that um, you're going down in the water, dying to your old identity of, of not being a, a Jew, of being a Gentile or a pagan, and uh, being cleansed from your sins and then raised up into that new identity of a son or daughter of Abraham. So it was interesting when John is calling people to baptize, there's lots of crowds there, and they're like, a lot of them are, probably all of them really are probably Jewish people. And, and, and John's saying to them, you know, don't risk rely on your inheritance, just because, don't, just because you think you're a son of Abraham. God could raise these stones to become son of Abraham. He's getting beyond this, the ethical idea that I am in touch with God, everything's fine with me because I'm a Jew. And so John was really preparing people. That's really why he was baptizing people. He was preparing them to think, actually, you're not so good. <laughs> he was trying to get them to recognize that we do all have a need to be clean, that one was unclean, that one is broken and fragmented, that one is sinful, even to use that word nowadays is a strange word. But this recognition that John was trying to get people to come to, not to rely on their own laws, their own identity, their own nationality, coming from a certain family. This recognition of their own need was crucial in preparing them of meeting Christ. So these people who came to John and got baptized, they learned a key truth, not the only truth about themselves, but a, tr a key truth that we all as humans have a tendency and a propensity to, to mess things up, <laughs> to mess ourselves up, to mess others up. And it's not just that our actions we mess up our actions, but we have this sort of inbuilt nature, this tendency to do it. But yet we live in a culture, I think anyway, well, <laughs> we can live in all different cultures, multicultural, that kind of conspires against this recognition. I think it's a reaction against wanting freedom from an unhealthy, neurotic sense of guilt, an unhealthy sense of Catholic guilt. I want to be free now, free from them. I don't want to, there's no need to recognize I'm sinful. That's all old, old hat. I'm grand. And I think sometimes we can get this mixed up in some, like, you know, this uh, culture, if it feels good, just do it. Yeah, and if you feel a bit guilty, that's just old stuff you need to leave behind. Get on and live your life. But I suppose in Christianity, when they say we're sinful, we're broken, it's not a judgment on someone's worth, but a judgment like a diagnosis. So when you come to Dr. Sick and they say you've got, you know, the flu or something, it's not like, oh, no, he thinks I'm an awful person. It's no, he's just making a diagnosis of it. And these words, broken, assumes that there's something that, that has been fixed or was broken, something that whole, fragmented means something whole, something that's unclean presumes that something was clean. And even the word sin, its, it's origin comes from the idea of archery when you miss the mark. So it's, again, assuming that there is a mark to get. So in some ways, this recognition of an unhealthiness and a recognition of sin is, a re is actually very, I think, in some ways, incredibly dignifying, because it's sort of saying you were made for so much more. You're a son and daughter of God. You're made in the image of God. You're this divine. There is a mark to be there. It is a benchmark, you know? What was that song years ago? Uh, you and me, are baby, are nothing but mammals. So let's, yeah. So, uh, but this idea, you know, that in culture, no, we are just really just mammals, we're just beasts, we're just whatever, and so. But then this idea of that if there, is, uh, if there is a recognition that we're sin in our lives, it's the idea that, no, we were made for so much more. 
And I think the Jewish people got that a bit, maybe a bit too much, that they were very special. So when they fell all the time, they really felt that disconnect. And guilt is an interesting thing. It's not necessarily bad. It can be a bad thing, but it can be a good thing. And my work, I was telling in, my, in the previous sermon, I work as a social worker, and in the, at the moment I work in addiction service. And every two weeks we bring the family and the patients in together. And one of the big things about addiction, when someone gets to call an addiction, is this whole idea of lack of self-awareness, that they actually have an addiction. This lack of awareness that, uh, and we call it lack of insight into their condition. And so I'm up there doing a, a presentation uh, uh, on, on the impact that addiction can have on relationships and families. I'm in a room with families and their patients, patients and their families. And, you know, as I'm speaking, I'm almost feeling like a bit like a John the Baptist giving the bad news as the, family, as the patient's face drop and they're scowling at me as I'm laying out the realities of what addiction can bring, chaos and destruction. And I say often at the start, this won't be a nice talk. It'll probably not make you feel well, nice. It'll probably make you feel guilty. But sometimes this guilt, when I've noticed it working with families and patients, when they feel the guilt, it's a really good sign. Sometimes they go, oh, no, I'm feeling really bad. Feeling really bad isn't necessarily a bad thing because they're actually getting in touch with reality. And as they begin to feel this guilt and the reality, and if they can hold on to the other truth, that they're full of great worth, as well as they've made a big mistakes here, it brings a motivation and an intention to change. And I think this is what, a little bit what John the Baptist was doing, preparing people with the act of baptism, saying Jewish people letting go of holding on to their identity, letting go of all their good works and getting down in the water and the messiness of this with this wild man who's a prophet saying all this crazy stuff and getting down, humbling yourself publicly, confessing the River Jordan. We read there was tax collectors, religious leaders, everyone getting down, every one of them saying, I'm broken, I'm messed up, I'm recognizing I have a need. We also live in a kind of distracting lifestyle with little time and space to recognize, I think, the line between good and evil isn't out there, but in our souls. Sometimes it's scary being still and knowing ourselves. So why was John baptizing? I think he was preparing people for Christ. And how was he preparing them, helping them recognize their need to be clean, to be forgiven, in a way to just press that spiritual refresh button again? And knowing at the end of the day that they could keep baptizing, but there was something that was missing. So then when we read in the Gospel of John, when John says, as a few days before he baptized John, Jesus was milling around. He said, look, this is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Why was John getting, you know, and, and that was quite a statement to say. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of me, my propensity, tendency to mess up that piece of me, takes away the sins of Rob, of Dillis, of Andy, of everyone I can look around, every one of us, Donald Trump, of Leah Vadker, Mother Teresa. And so Jesus comes, we read in Matthew's Gospel account, to get baptized. Luke just sort of says it flippantly, and he, people were getting baptized, and Jesus got baptized. You know, John's like, no, everyone else needs to get baptized. We're trying to get everyone else baptized, but you're the last person who needs to get baptized. There's no guilt on you. What's going on here? And I think he got baptized for a couple of reasons. One was he got baptized to be one with us. He became one for us and one with us. I think the other thing was that Jesus came, he came baptized as a kind of 
incredible sign, a powerful sign of his ultimate goal and purpose was the cross and the resurrection. Because while we can get washed and clean and have our prayers of confession every day or once a week, we know we have to keep doing it, and it can be really difficult. But I think the incredible thing about the baptism is this image of that. And I read in, this is really why we get baptized in, in a, Romans 6, Paul really explains a lot of this, this mystery, this symbolism of baptism. In the message version, it goes a bit like this. Paul says, this is what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came out of the water, we entered the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. So that's what happens. That's That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we are lowered into the water, it is like the burial of Jesus. And when we're raised up out of the water, it is like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in our new grace, sovereign country. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ, decisive end to that sin-miserable life, no longer at sin's every beck and call. What we believe is this. If we get included in God's sin-conquering death, we also get included in his life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him, but alive, he brings God down to us. So from now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue, and you hang on every word. You are dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. And it's really good. You can keep reading Romans 6 is, is class stuff. But is this great mystery of 2,000 years ago, the symbolism of Jesus dying in our place, going down the water, and rising up in his resurrection life, how this can kind of somehow connect to us today in Dublin, Ireland in 2019. The more I'm realizing when I'm kind of, my rational brain is sort of trying to figure this out, the more realizing that I've got a bit of a problem. I've got, I think, a God deficit disorder, which is this other day, I have a very small view of God. Sometimes we think of God as just the biggest being there is. And that's still pretty impressive, but I think he's bigger than that. Um, we read in Acts that really God is the ground of all being. In him we live, move, and have our being. He's not just some big, big personality, the biggest person you can have. He is personality. And he's eternal. And I just think I can just have this sort of image that we are in all, the, all matter, all known universe, we are in God. And yet God is also personal. And so in this internal God, he's, when he did this thing on the cross for us, I always just have this image of these sort of, sort of time, threads that go across time and space and all the dimensions right into now. So what was happening then can be happening to us now. Little hooks. Do you want to get part of this? Do you want to be united with Christ now today? It's there for you again. It's there for you again. It's not just our actual sins are forgiven, or that very part of our nature, that's gone too as well. It's incredible. And it's not that, that God, re, God makes us like robots to reprogram us. It's more that he plants seeds of potentiality 
cultivate and grow. So that old habits, if fed, unfortunately, will take longer to die off, while new habits, if fed, will grow and bear much fruit. And what's amazing, this image, really, because, you know, the, the big thing for me in this baptism image of Christ rising raising up was what happened when he raised up into this resurrection aspect in the baptism sign. Three things. In some ways, what we get is we, get a, we have our physical birth certificate, and for certain people, that's vital if you want to get passports, and passports are vital for different things. But we also, Paul talks about a spiritual birth certificate, and I think baptism is, for me is kind of like that. Yes, it's, it's very important with the, having the paper, but it's the significance of what that means. And many of us, whether we're christened or baptized or thinking of baptism, it's really important. It's our spiritual birth cert. But what do we do with that? And these are some of the potential things that can happen in our lives if we kind of take that spiritual birth cert on. When Jesus rose out of the water when he was baptized, it says that there was an open heaven. We were praying for that this morning. What is, the, what is an open heaven? What is heaven? Sometimes we think heaven is physically somewhere beyond, but heaven can be right here. It's whether we, we enter into that, whether we ex- experience an openness to that or not. What is an open heaven? I wrote down here, it's when we begin to experience the reality of the unseen world of God in everyday life. And that's what Jesus came to preach. He didn't really preach what I'm preaching. He preached an open heaven. The kingdom of God is at hand. You can begin to experience the reality of the unseen world of God in everyday life. And if we were to listen to the words of Jesus, it can be a bit off because maybe we don't believe the God he believes in. We don't believe in this open heaven that he believes in. And if we can believe that, maybe those words begin to make more sense. I've used this poem before, Elizabeth Browning. Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afar with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck back blackberries. So even this morning as Rob he was seeing an open heaven as he nailed there. Maybe some of us didn't, and that's okay. For many of us, for me, an open heaven is like a door that just it's a little crack. And, I, and, and you want so much more, and we can press in and open that open heaven so that we could be looking at a tree and we feel open heaven. We can be in a really difficult place. We have a sense of God's open heaven. We can just be doing something so mundane and just sense his presence in the ordinary, everyday life. That Every common bush is afar with God. How do we begin to open that up? Well, again here, it comes through personal seeking, that desperateness to have an open heaven in our lives, to a spiritual reorientation that baptism brings, and of course, God's responsive act of making himself present in the season of epiphany to those ready to receive. The second thing that we hear when Jesus gets raised from the baptism is this voice of love. There was nothing better than experiencing in the deepest part of ourselves the acceptance of God as our Father, saying, this is my son and this is my daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. There's a movie I've just watched recently lots of times with my uh, two girls uh, called Sing. Have you ever seen it? And we, she, they always wanted me to go, Dad, be Johnny, be Johnny, which is the, the, the gorilla who, um, who's an incredible... Uh, she actually, Lane actually said, can we get dad a gorilla suit for his birthday? After, so. 
have these black gloves for cycling, and they kind of look like gorilla hands. And anyway, um, the classic story of a of a son doesn't want to follow his, in his father's footsteps of a life of crime, and decides to sing instead. And his dad doesn't really rejects him, but at the end he comes back to him, and it's just like he sees him, his son singing, and he kind of goes, "That's my son." Oh, Johnny, that's my son. And it's just this, and I think sometimes it can be a bit holy when we read some of these scriptures of, of the voice the father saying, Scott, this is my son, whom well pleased. But no, it's more of the tone that you pick up, isn't it? It's more the sense of being looked at in a certain way. That's my son. That's my daughter. And in sort of 12 years, I suppose, of working with many people in many broken situations, poor self-esteem and suicidal and emotionally broken. I just know that one of the cures for excessive working, excessive defensiveness, timid, prone to burnout, is experiencing that voice of love. This is my son. Even though you haven't done anything yet, Jesus, you're just sort of appearing on the scene. Oh, and I love you, and I'm really pleased with you. And again, like the crack in the door, it could start with a whisper, it could start with a yearning but to press through into that hearing that voice of love. It's so interesting, straight after hearing this, in, in Luke's gospel, it goes through his physical birth cert, and then it goes straight into the devil saying, if you are the Son of God. So important to be prepared with this. And the final one, and we finish with this, really, is the Spirit's encounter of the dove, of the Spirit's peace and power that can come into our lives. The peace of forgiveness peace that we can find in the chaos of our lives that just goes beyond understanding. And power that goes beyond our natural abilities. And again, it'll take time to grow in our lives. But these are all things, as Eugene Peter says in one of his books, it's all about practicing resurrection now. We've done the baptism. We've died to our sins. We can unite with Christ in that and live a free life that sin no longer has the last word. But now are we willing to practice resurrection, post-baptism, practice the open heaven, practice the voice of love, and to practice the Spirit's encounter. So we'll get the band up as we pray. We think of, so often I know, Father, Spirit, you want to invade our lives, but you respect us so much. You respect our choice. You respect the dignity of us humans. And like a dove, you will come gently. You will come when you are invited. You will come when you are wanted. And the ministry of John the Baptist to prepare our hearts for that want, to prepare our hearts for that desire. Maybe today, oh, that's all we need from you, Holy Spirit, is to make us hungry and thirsty for you again. Maybe that's all we can ask for now. Maybe it's like to pray, Father, I want to want you. Maybe heaven feels very closed to us right now. Maybe when we ask, it's just silence. I pray by your grace, Holy Spirit, that you would begin to open cracks in our worlds, that we can sense the open heaven in the mundane of life. For us who have hooked into the culture of our identities and what we do, into this idea that we are human doings, I pray that we could just be 
human beings, being at rest in our identity with you. And pray for any of us who just need that power of your spirit into our lives. Would you flow now with your breath again? Amen.